Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. John chapter 1. We're going to talk about radically good. Father, would you open the word and open our hearts to your word? We want to be faithful. We want to hear the truth. We want to believe it. We want to be changed by it. I pray for grace, Lord, to speak your word and to speak it uh, joyfully, lovingly, and faithfully. And that I'll hear it afresh myself. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'll start with um, John 1.1. We're going to go down through verse 5 today. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Would you read that in your version, whatever it is? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word... Let's do it once more, good and loud. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Amen, I'll take it. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Let me say that again. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. I think we find God's ways mysterious. Not because they are so complex we can't understand them. But because they are so good, and we are not, that they just don't make sense to us. Do you see where I'm going with this? We often talk about God's mysterious ways and how difficult it is to understand them. As though they are really, really complex and you have to be really smart to understand them. The issue isn't so much smart. The issue is that God's heart, who he is, is so different, he does things differently than we do. He is radically good. God is good at a level that at times shocks us, or to be honest, may even trouble us. He does things we would never have even thought of doing. I believe it's because we don't hate sin like he hates it, and we don't love people like he loves them. And frankly, most of us are way too proud to humble ourselves to the extent that he did. Which is why this opening passage in the Gospel of John is so difficult to comprehend. There may be no portion of the Bible which has been more furiously debated, picked apart, retranslated, or explained in the most bizarre ways than this. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not exaggerating and I'm not making that up. There are whole translations out there just basically to gut John 1, 1 through 18, and get, get it rid of it, as it were. Make it say something it doesn't say. Whole translations are printed just to fix this passage. This passage is dangerous. This passage, about every cult you want, you, you want to deal with, has a really deep opinion on this passage. I had people walk on me last night. I probably will today. I don't know. I'm not encouraging you. <laughs> but why is it? If I simply tell you the truth about this passage, it's so inflammatory. Why is it so disturbing? What is it about this passage that has been fought over for for centuries, actually? Apparently, the truth it contains disturbs a lot of people. They feel compelled to correct John's theology, which is ironic because John wrote these words to correct their theology. He did. That's why he wrote this in his old age. Like, he can't believe where they're going. Like, I'm going to get this straight. So instead of trying to reinterpret what John reveals about God, let's listen to him with an open mind and let him show us things that will amaze us, that will drive us to ask the question, what kind of God would do such a thing? With these few verses, John pulls back the curtain And allows us to peer into eternity. And behold the very moment when all creation began. 
He doesn't try to explain the physical mechanics of how God did all of this. He simply reveals the spiritual source behind it. He tells us who made it. And as we gaze into heaven, we see the Father and someone John calls the Word to remind us that all all this person had to do was speak and the universe came forth out of nothing. He only needed to say, let there be light. And there was light. Let's listen carefully to these verses. The book of Genesis opens with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then goes on to describe God speaking creation into existence over the course of six days. John opens his gospel with the same words, in the beginning, NRK, and then goes on to describe someone whom he calls the word, and says the person was the active agent through whom the creation took place. There's no mistaking his point. He's introducing us to Jesus. He's telling us that Jesus is God, not in a way that supplants God the Father, but God in that he is the Father's divine son, and as such was present with the Father when the creation of the universe took place. John is taking us back to the moment when everything other than God began, and he says there were at least two persons present. Does that make sense? Yeah. This is what it says. This is, for some reason, this just really ruffles the feathers. Here's how John says this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was, and and then it says, we translate it with. And and I assumed, I I do work in the Greek, and I assumed, I know which preposition that probably is, which is ironic, because I had to memorize this when I was in seminary, but I forgot. And there are three other words that, would have been more likely to use for the word with. And I, I won't give you those. You don't need to hear them. But he picks one that means toward, facing. It's, it's pros. It means to move towards something. It, it really isn't. I mean, with, yeah, but it, with as, as beside and, and, it, and it's facing. He says, in the beginning was the, was the word, and the word was with, beside, facing toward God. And God was the word. Notice how I translated that? That's the literal word order. God. He doesn't, he's not saying the Father was the word. He's saying, and God was the word. He's telling us the divinity of this word. Then, so we won't miss his point, he says again, this one, the word, was in the beginning with, beside, facing toward God. This means God the Father was not alone before he created all things. A divine person was there, and I believe he calls that person the word because it was through that person that he spoke all things into being and continued to communicate with his creation ever since. When John wrote the words in the beginning, he used the same two Greek words found in Genesis 1.1 in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint, which had been in use for three centuries by the time he wrote this. The word which we translate as beginning was used to describe the source, the origin, the very first cause of something. There was another Greek word he could have uh, used, which means beginning in the sense of the first in a series of things. But he didn't use that word. Because he was talking about the moment when all things other than God began. This means Jesus, the word, wasn't part of that creation. He himself wasn't created. He is divine, eternal. He existed before creation began. Would you say he existed before? Let's do it again. He existed before. There at the very beginning at the very source of all things. In fact, I'll, I'll show you, in case you think I'm, 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 I'm off, I'm gonna, you'll be sorry. Um, uh, yeah, no, uh, this, this is consistent with Paul, this is consistent with Hebrews, and we know who wrote Hebrews, and, and, and all of this. I mean, this, this is a, this, what he's saying is not him by himself. He is saying what the apostolic church believed. And how would John know? He walked with him. He listened to him. Why would John say these things? He heard him. He, Jesus taught him these things. You know, there, there aren't little groups of people coming up with, with great religious thinking. There is inspiration, and there are people 
Jesus is the one who taught him these things. Again, so no one would mistake his point. John adds this statement, all things came into being through him and without him not one thing came into being which has come into being. So Jesus was present at the moment of creation and personally participated in every aspect of it. This is a stunning thing to say about a man, a human being whom John knew personally and followed as a disciple for three and a half years. But John is not alone in declaring Jesus to be divine as well as, as human. Paul clearly says the same thing. Quote, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. Would you say from and for? From and for. Yeah, all things are from him and for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Would you say by and through? By and through. Yeah. To the church in Colossae, Paul wrote, for by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth. Visible, now look at this list, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's the, he's the heir of all things. When he starts talking about visible and invisible thrones and authorities, he's talking virtually about the spiritual world, not just the physical world, but the very spiritual world other than, of course, God himself, who is eternal. The author of Hebrews gives us further insight into Jesus as the word. When he wrote God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days has spoken to us in his son. See the parallel? Whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. Any questions? Isn't it clear? It's consistent, it's clear, they're all saying the same thing. As this gospel continues, John will repeatedly show us by the things Jesus said and did that he is both divine and human. That's where the gospel of John is going to go. He picks seven signs, he's going to lay out those signs for us. And those signs all say this. Everything in the gospel says this. This isn't like something got stuck on the front of it. The entire gospel says these things. In this verse, John makes, uh, verse four, John makes another statement that can only mean that Jesus is divine. He says, in him was life. In the book of Genesis, God is pictured as breathing life into the nostrils of a clay image of a man. And when he does, the image comes to life. In other words, God is the source of life. All life is a gift from him. So to say that Jesus contains life, that like the Father, he too is a source of life, is to picture him as the divine creator who blew the breath of life into Adam. But the life John is talking about here is more than just biological life. Jesus is also the source of spiritual life. Toward the end of his gospel, John describes the resurrected Jesus breathing on his disciples and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. Do you remember that? And to describe that act of breathing, John chose the same Greek word in which, which is used in Genesis 2.7, and God breathed into his nostrils. So Jesus is the one who breathed into us biological and spiritual life. The word is not a, is not a common word. It's, got a, it's, it's the word breathe, but it's got a preposition on the front, and it's not the one you would have thought. When it's, you remember the picture of, of Jesus? He's resurrected. The, the doors were locked. He appears to his disciples in, in that upper room. Remember this? They're frightened. He shows up, and he, and he says to them, Shalom, peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. And then it says, he, he breathed on them. And I would have thought the word would be breathed out. You know. But the word is inbreathed. Exactly the same word, the unusual word that is used there in Genesis 2.7. Remember the picture with Adam, with, with Adam? The creator is there and he breathes into the nostrils of this clay image that he's made of a man. And suddenly Adam comes alive. And he's awake and life has begun. 
Here we have Jesus in the upper room, the resurrected Lord now, with his disciples. And he does the same thing. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? It's powerful what's being told us. In him was life. Would you say that? God the Father is the ultimate source of all life. But as Jesus explains later on in this gospel, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. That Jesus had this divine life in himself could be seen repeatedly throughout his ministry as he healed the sick and raised the dead. Never did he operate independently from the Father, nor minister apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. But the divine life which flowed out of him was unmistakable. And it revealed his true identity to all who were willing to see. John repeatedly uses the term light to, reveal, to mean God's revealed truth. And darkness to mean spiritual confusion and deception. That's really important. I need you to get a hold of that. Because you're going to see light and dark. Light and darkness all through the gospel. So t- tell me, what does light mean? Say God's revealed truth. Yeah, it's the it's as though you're you're in a dark room, can't see anything. Suddenly there's light. Now you can see where where things are. When you're there, you are in spiritual darkness, spiritual confusion, spiritual deception, and suddenly the light of God comes, and you can see the truth. You understand? It's very very clear uh, metaphor. So when he says the life in Jesus became the light of men. He's talking about those people who saw the signs and miracles Jesus performed or heard the amazing words he spoke and realized who he was and believed in him. They saw the life in him. Verse five, up until now, John has been speaking about Jesus in a past tense. But in this verse, he puts one statement into the present tense because he's telling us about something that's still happening today. He says, the light shines In the darkness, meaning the revelation of who Jesus is began when he ministered for three and a half years in Israel, but still continues to open people's spiritual eyes whenever the gospel is proclaimed. Then John returns to a past tense to describe how most of those who saw Jesus during those three and a half years responded. He says, in the darkness, the spiritual confusion and deception did not understand, comprehend, recognize the truth in what they saw In other words, when Jesus came to earth, most people did not recognize him. And later on, John will quote from the prophet Isaiah to explain why. Notice, John makes simple declarative statements. He doesn't try to convince us with arguments. He puts the truth in front of us and invites us to believe. There's something about truth, real truth that resonates inside the human heart. It doesn't need a lot of argument or philosophical defense. Why? Because it's true. I was uh, meeting a couple of of, uh, church leaders uh, about something uh, a few months ago, I think. And uh, we got discussing this, uh, the the subject of women in ministry, leadership and all. And... um, you know, we have a book in here called Women in Ministry Leadership, and it's a small book. And uh, I confess, I, I, it's for the denominations, but I edited it, and, and uh, so I think it's really good. And, <laughs> but it's real concise. And this one person said, well, whatever. But here's a book that's 800 pages. And uh, my response was, <clears throat> <laughs> I said, you know, if it takes 800 pages to say something, it can't possibly be true. <laughs> and his, yeah, he did, his jaw just went, you know, hit the floor. I actually believe that. If it takes 800 pages, if, if I have to hedge and push and shove and, uh, and, and reinterpret all this stuff to get to something, it ain't true. They're lying to you. Yeah, these big long books, they're lying to you, basically. That's, that's why they had to write so much. Because if it was true, you could just sort of say it, maybe a point or two, and everybody goes, yeah, there it is. You understand where I'm going? Yeah, when people snow you with verbiage, there's a problem. They don't know what they're talking about, or they're leading you down the yellow brick road. Now, now I'm sure there'll be 800-page books, 
and they're good. I, I, I'm not saying. But no, know what I'm saying. When people have to do too much explaining, they're trying to get you to not believe your lying eyes. They're trying to get you to doubt what your heart clearly shows you. Truth is like that. It's lovely stuff. When it's true, we kind of know. Just radically good. When John pulls back the curtain and lets us look into heaven, what do we see? We see the Father and Son relating to one another in ways we would never expect. They're showing us by the way they treat each other, at least in part, what true goodness looks like. In passages like this, we discover what the word holy really means. We find it means God is radically good, far beyond anything we've ever seen in this fallen world. See, that's what holy is. It's not he's grumpy and he's different and he's picky. He's not sort of off there and strange. God is holy because he is so good, we have a hard time understanding him. We don't, we don't, we're not used to purity. We're not used to that kind of love. We're not used to that kind of honesty, that kind of clean, clean heart. It's just different from us. He's holy. He's really different, but he's radically good. Within the very heart of God, we observe, number one, unity. Turn with me, would you, to John 14. Uh, I've got a couple of places to turn. There's just it's too much to put in your, in your notes. John 14, verse 6. Thomas is asked the question, good old Thomas, um, and Jesus answers him and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It's, it's enough for us. I mean, if we've seen him, we don't know it. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now we're going to get to this passage and, it, and this whole business of being in. But let me tell you briefly. It means that he, he, he perfectly, perfectly represents the Father, expresses his nature, and is submitted to and dependent upon the Father. Jesus is telling you, telling, Tom, telling Philip and Thomas, telling us, he said, when you see what I do, when you see what I, hear what I speak, when you watch me, you are perfectly watching the Father in action. I am expressing his heart. I am doing what he has, he's instructing me to do. As you watch me, there is not a trace of difference. I am fulfilling the Father's heart. How do you like the Father? When you see Jesus, do you like Jesus? Pretty wonderful, isn't he? So is the Father. I mean, when you, get, when you and I get a hold of this, it cleans up our theology it's just like that sword that just cuts the knot. You know, all of a sudden, all of the nonsense goes away. Jesus perfectly represents God the Father. I am so grateful. Because I've seen Jesus, the Word. I've been communicated with in terms I understand. I, I can watch through the Gospels the, how he thinks, how he reacts, how he deals with people, how he deals with sinners. I can see God in action in Jesus. And I am so comforted. The Father and the Son work together seamlessly. There is only one agenda. The Father's will. Which, is, which they pursue together in perfect harmony. There aren't two wills struggling against each other. There's no competition or jealousy. And that's not because the Father dominates the Son. It's because the son loves the father and delights to do his will. Look, the father is perfect. The father's will is, is complete love and wisdom and goodness. Why would the son struggle against the, the will of the father? He, he, it, it's the very thing he loves and delights in. The, the problem for us humans is that we have never seen nor participated in this kind of loving unity. 
It's completely foreign to us. When we think of two persons, we can only think of two competing agendas. Two egos, both needing attention and striving for control. Because that's how we function. But here's how the father and the son function. This happened this past week. Uh, Mary and I were, were putting up my luggage in the, and some other luggage. It, we put it in the rafters in the garage. And uh, you know, we got to get the ladder out. And she hands it up to me and I put it up in all of this. And uh, we got the luggage up in the rafters and put the ladder away and everything. And uh, she commented, she said, hey, we did that without arguing. And she gave me a high five. <laughs> and and I, I was kind of proud of myself too. We are both, uh, we are both leaders in our own right. And we, we know the way. And, uh, yeah, and we, over our history, and we're married for 43 years, over our history, um, we have had uh, times where we, we just can't even move a couch without a, a pretty thorough discussion. Uh, <laughs> we love each other very much. Yeah, we're not. It's not that. Uh, but it's just two different person, two wills. Two, two, no, it really belongs there, don't you see? You know? And uh, no, I think it belongs over here. Uh, or, or whatever it is. Isn't that human experience? You put any two of us in the room, and sooner or later, we're going to bump heads. So when you talk to us about a father and a son, and, and it, notice that we haven't gone to the Holy Spirit, but he's certainly there in the book of, of John as well. When you talk about these, this, this kind of unity, we can't comprehend it. It is completely out of our experience. That's the issue. So people try to explain God and say, well, he's like an egg. You know, there's the shell and the yolk and, and the white. An egg? <laughs> That's disgusting. It's not an egg. And it's not some monster with three components. A spirit is a person. Get that straight. Spirit is a substance. It's a person. You have a, if you have a father and a son and a Holy Spirit, you got persons, not an egg. But, when, but for us to conceive of three persons... Functioning in complete unity is something we've never, ever seen in our lives. And it, it's very, see, see, I say it's hard to understand, not because it's so complex. It's hard to understand because it's so good. Turn with me, if you will, to Philippians 2, verse 5. Paul is discussing this same wonderful thing. And he describes Jesus, what he's done. In fact, and now he's instructing you and me to have the same attitude in us of humility that Jesus had. And listen to what the humility that he says Jesus expressed. He says, have this attitude, verse 5, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality a thing with God a thing to be grasped, though he was there in heaven in the glory as the divine son, of all that that means, in spirit, did not regard that status, that, that, that wonder, something to be clinged, clung to, but was willing to lay it down. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, not emptied himself of his divinity, you can't. You're a spirit. You are who you are. But laying the privileges and all of this down like a coat. And in the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Not just likeness, like he sort of looked like us. He's, he's, he's simply saying, we now became a human being. And found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. John reveals who Jesus really is and the price he paid to leave heaven and come to earth. He shows us a level of humility, selfless love that leaves us speechless. It really is shocking. The divine son 
who spoke the worlds into being became a baby. This glorious one left a face-to-face fellowship with the Father. He set aside his divine glory to become a human. And he can never go back. He has made this change once for all. He became one of us to save us. Talk about humility. Can I point out that in the very, the, the very heart of God, in the very throne room of heaven, is, is humility? Humility has nothing to do with inferiority or anything like that. Humility is, is the very nature of our God. So we, are, you, are you and I asked to be humble? Oh, yeah. To do the same sort of things? Oh, yeah. This is the God we've come to. He's not something he puts on us. It's something he is. To save us, he had to become one of us. And that change is irreversible. Submission. Now would you turn with me to, this is I think the last place I'll have you turn. Uh, 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is speaking of the resurrected Jesus and he has told us how Christ has defeated death even as Adam brought death into the world. Christ has defeated it for all and we've talked about that. Actually the righteous and the unrighteous. But then he says there beginning at uh, verse 24 and then comes the end. The end of the age. When he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God, the God and Father. So you, pi- you picture now, Jesus, the triumphant Lord, who has, who has brought this rebellious earth into submission, takes now and hands this over to who? To the Father. See that? All right. And when he has abolished, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, in other words, everything wicked that resists him. That's, what he's, that's the kind of rule and authority he's talking about. For he, Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. We're in that process now. We're in the process now, in the, still in that, in that era of favor in which enemies are being put under the feet of Jesus through conversion. People are finding him by giving their hearts to him. Hallelujah. So, so great numbers. Great numbers of people all over the planet are, are walking out of their independence and their separateness from God and they're surrendering to Jesus Christ and believing in him and, and walking into the kingdom joyfully and by faith. The day will come when he comes and he will rule with a rod of iron. Um, there'll, be a, there'll be an imposed righteousness. It's not here yet. But we're not because we're in an age of salvation. Hallelujah. He, for he must put all things under, he, the father this is, the father has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. This is the will of the father. But when he says all things are put in subjection, says Paul, it is evident that he, the father, is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. In other words, the father is not in subjection to the son. Everything, everything is brought in subjection to the Son. And then what happens? Look at the next verse. This, this bothers people. I might as well pick them all, huh? <laughs> verse 28. When all things are subjected, in other words, Jesus Christ has been exalted and become the Lord of all. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. Then the Son himself will also be what? Go ahead and say it again. Subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, to the Father. So that God, the Father, may be all in all. Boy, that bothers people. They, they, they call it subordinationism. Hallelujah. I call it 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28. <laughs> Sorry you don't like it. Though he is divine, equal in nature to his Father, the Son willingly, lovingly, joyfully surrenders his will to the Father. Listen. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the father doing. 
For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. That's the way he ministered. Now look at this. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. As we've been reading John 1, doesn't that statement, for I have come down from heaven, make make sense? It's exactly what he means. And this willing, loving, joyful submission of the Son to the Father didn't end when Jesus returned to heaven. It will last forever, as we have seen. All of this presses us to ask the question, why did the Father send his Son? And why did the Son willingly surrender such glory to become one of us? The answer begins to be revealed by John's description of Jesus as the light of men. But later on is completely exposed by this statement. Would you read it out loud with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Why did God do this? You tell me. Because of his great love. This all has to do with love. And notice who he gave. He did not give uh, an angel. He did not give an emanation. He did not give an idea. He did not pick a man and sort of dub him his, his guy. He sent who? His only begotten son. Say that. His only begotten son. And that word, monogenes, it means exactly that. Only begotten. Cats beget kittens. Dogs beget puppies. Humans beget babies. God has begotten a son. I have three children. They are not less human than I am. Arguably, they're in better shape. (laughs) They are a completely human. You beget your own kind. You make stuff. You beget your own kind. It will say in verse 18, he'll, he'll use the term monogenes theos. Only begotten God. Deal with it. It is what it says. Don't like it? Write your own Bible. Many have. But it is what it says. Isn't it amazing? This father has sent to us his only begotten son. Who willingly, joyfully, surrendered his glory to become not only a man, but to let us tear him to pieces, rip his beard, spit on him, mock him, to be cursed with the wrath of God for three hours for our sins. Humble surrender beyond our comprehension. Simply beyond anything we understand. Don't take away from it. Let the truth be what it is. It's stunning. This is our salvation. So, God's radical goodness includes these four elements. Along with many others. Unity, humility, submission, and love. Would you say that? Unity, humility, submission, and love. And remember, God wants these same qualities formed in us as well. His goal is for us to become just like him. And John is showing us who he is and how heaven operates. A place to stand. Living on this planet forces every one of us to live by faith. Whether we are religious or not, Each of us must find a starting point, something we believe is true. To live in a world with no absolutes is to question, to question everything is to move toward insanity. People who end up there become terribly despondent, often wishing they could die. And the problem is there is nothing that can be absolutely proven beyond the shadow of a doubt. You know that? You can't prove you exist, if you really get down to it. If we pursue truth through philosophy or science, sooner or later we discover human knowledge always hits a wall. Even physics and math 
when you progress further and further into them, end up with theories that sound suspiciously spiritual. Have you, have you had enough math or know people who know math? My, 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 my roommate in college was a math physics major. Go figure, how, what were we doing in the same room? But uh, we would sit and talk, you know. Tell me what he's in advanced physics and advanced mathematics and all of this kind of stuff. And and start start talking about what you're learning in your classes. It becomes very spiritual. Amazing as you begin to get out on the theories of how things are made and how they hold together. All kinds of discussions that sound so theological. By showing us the moment of creation, John presents certain truths and invites us to choose them. As the foundation for our lives, he asks us to believe that there is a God who made everything. Everything good, that is. He asks us to believe that God the Father has a son who is as divine as he is. And that it was through his son that the Father spoke the physical world and even the spiritual world into existence. He asks us to believe God sent that son to save us. Such great truths are not something we'll ever fully grasp this side of eternity. And maybe not there either. But whether or not we can fully understand them, we can still choose to believe them and build our lives on them. To do so requires us at some point to stop questioning everything and humbly accept the revelation we've been given. And when we do, The confusion, the insanity of living in a world where nothing is true finally comes to an end. We find our feet standing on a solid rock. The the great questions of life begin to be answered. But the God to whom John is introducing us never leaves us standing in one place. He keeps revealing himself to us, drawing us closer. Our first step of faith opens the door for the next and then the next until we finally find ourselves beholding the glorious goodness, his glorious goodness, amazed at who he is and what he has done and why. You and I can't comprehend all of this. Pride of mind is a terrible barrier to God. Pride of mind. I have to understand all this. I won't believe it until I understand it. Well, you won't ever So you're done. You're through. You're just simply through. There comes this moment where the human must bow their knee and say, I know what you've said. My heart resonates that this is true. I do not understand. But I am willing to, by faith, choose this and put my faith on you. I will trust you to the last breath in my body. That's the faith that saves us, my men and women. That's how we do this. It isn't just simply, you don't have to sort of wait till you're sort of emotional. You'll find, I'll find, you find you get, tend to get emotional. There's nothing wrong with it. You watch me do it. But the fact of the matter is, it's something you say, I'm going to believe that. I'm going to stand on Jesus Christ. Above all else, John wants us to see who Jesus is. He wants us to understand that the man who died on the cross for us existed before all things were created. The man they drove nails into was the one who had spoken them into existence. John has shown us the beautiful unity between the father and the son. He's shown us the incomprehensible humility it took for Jesus to leave heaven and come to earth. He's shown us that That submission is no way connected to inferiority. But rather is something holy. Which belongs first of all in heaven. Imagine that. Submission is in heaven. Not of inferiority but of love and of honor. And finally he's shown us the motive behind it all. Why the father sent his son. And why Jesus gladly came. It was because of love. And now that we've seen these things, there's a question that confronts us all. Do we really believe? Will we accept these truths by faith? Now that John has pulled the curtain aside, do we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we will have life in his name? Would you stand with me?
What a gospel, huh? Blessed be the Lord. I want to ask, as, I, as, as, as we've heard John and what he said of the Lord, these declarations of, of who Jesus is, of why he came, of what he's done. It's pretty amazing. You won't figure it out, but you can choose to believe. And I just want to ask anyone today, as you've heard this, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that we live in a community where there's been a lot of attack on some of the things I've said today. Some of you have maybe been exposed to that. And you, you've, you've had a lot of confusion introduced. I did not twist the word. Whether, whether, we, whether it makes sense to us or not, that is what he's talking about. Isn't it beautiful? But it is amazing. Can you believe that one who was with the Father in, in the moment of creation, through whom the word was, the worlds were made, left that glory and became a human being to bear our sin and to rise and defeat death and to become the firstborn of a new creation of men and women, resurrected men and women. Do you believe that? That's, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Would you bow your heads with me just one moment? Anyone today, you, you need to make that confession. What I would ask is just as you raise your hand and say, yes, I believe Jesus is the divine son. I believe he became a man. I believe he died for me and rose again. I am confessing that. I, and as John has opened this up, it's clearer than ever. I, by faith, whether I understand it or not, I embrace the cross of Jesus Christ. He is my savior. If anyone need to raise your hand, all I'll do is agree with you. But I think it's important to make a confession, to make that step. Yes, yes. I'm just going to try to acknowledge. Yes. 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 Hallelujah. This is not a game. This is extremely important. This is how you, you, you this is where it starts. Yes, I see your hand. Yes. Blessed be God. Praise you, Lord. Yes. Yes. He, he says, J Jesus said this. He said, this is the will of my father. That he, though anyone who beholds the son, in other words, sees who he really is and believes in him will have eternal life. And then the Lord says, and I myself, <laughs> I myself will raise him up on the last day. One more, one more, one more question. I just, I'm just asking anyone else. You say, all right, I'm choosing Jesus. I'm not asking for just a little vote for him. I'm, you're asking, you're saying, I'm embracing him and I will trust him the rest of my life. This is the one. This is the truth I'll stand on. This is the one I believe. This is the one I'll follow. Anyone else that I missed? Yes, praise God. Yes, I see your hand. Hallelujah. Thank you, everyone. All right, church, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are radically good. You are amazing. Your love for us is beyond words. That you would send your beloved son. And let us do to him what we did to him. So that we could be with you. So that our sins could be forgiven. It's a love beyond my understanding. This day, however, I believe it. I choose it. I, by faith, stand on that truth. You are my Savior, Jesus Christ. You died for my sins. You rose for my, my life. I embrace your cross. And I will not let go the rest of my life. Thank you, Lord. You have promised to raise me up on the last day. I believe it. Jesus Christ, I gladly bow my knee to you. You have been established as the Lord of all. Every knee is to bow. Every tongue is to confess you 
This is the will of the Father. I gladly bow my knee. I am no longer independent, rebellious, no longer living for myself. I am your disciple, will follow you, serve you, and live for you the rest of my days. I put my hand in yours, and I will follow and serve you gladly, willingly, lovingly, as you serve the Father. Jesus, my Savior. Jesus, my Lord. To the glory of God the Father. One more thing I want to pray, and that is that we have not talked in it today about, about the Holy Spirit, but the Gospel of John does deeply. But your promise, Jesus says this, he says, if anyone comes to me, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John, John explains, this he spoke of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which at that point in time, he says, was not yet given, for Jesus was not yet glorified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. But now it is. Now the Holy Spirit himself has been given to us to live literally within us. So if you're willing, would you put your hand on your heart? We're going to take this seriously, and we're going to invite the dear Holy Spirit of God to come and live within us. Hallelujah. Holy Spirit, you are my promised gift. Christ has redeemed me and cleansed my body as a holy temple, a suitable place for you to live, a tabernacle. Come, live within me with all your power, all your gifts, all your graces. I welcome you. I need you. By you, I will be strong and wise. By you, I can fulfill my calling. Come and never leave me for all eternity. In Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.